even though I can't really control completely my state of mind, I know when I'm in a good mood, when I'm creative, I'm also more exploratory. This is a beginner's mind. Can, you, can we train ourselves to look at the beauty of this world like, kids, like children that see it for the first time? It turns out everybody's depressed, but everybody's also mind-wandering. Hello, my name's Chris Meredith. And I'm Paul. <laughs> Welcome to the Common Creative. Um, and, and this week's episode, uh, Paul and I are both buzzing about the chance to speak to our guest from Israel. Um, uh, Moshe Bar is a world expert on neuroscience, but don't let that put you off before you hit the pause button on this podcast. He's uh, absolutely charming and uh, has just written an exciting book called Mind Wandering, How It Can Improve Your Mood and Wait For This and Boost Your Creativity. And that was the hope that got Paul and I so eager to listen to him. He's so, he's so, he's so curious as well, Chris. He's incredibly, <laughs> uh, incredibly curious mind. That was an absolutely fantastic, uh, informative, but also uh, heaps of fun uh, discussion. Um, yeah, and so, uh, I, I don't know if it's a rare example, but it's an example of an academic who's t- asked some very tough questions and probed in some really interesting parts of the human mind, but he's done it in a way which seem, makes it seem accessible. I love the fact that his book is called Mind Wandering and not the neuroscience of the, the cognitive networks of, of um, uh, you know, he's turned it into language that I think not only makes it understandable, but makes it interesting and I'm, I'm hoping everyone will want to find out more about how to use the idea of wandering and how to develop their creative selves yeah and look we can highly recommend his his book and there's also other podcasts maybe of lesser value lesser lesser quality that have uh, Moshe on them but what I found really not not only the fact is he bright and insightful what I really found is the clarity and simplicity which he describes these things which are quite complex and as we talk about it, you know, correcting me on a couple of occasions uh, for some misconceptions, but I just love the way that he's he so so easily does that. Um, so, uh, so yeah, fabulous. So let's uh, let's get uh, Moshe on. Moshe, a huge welcome to the Common Creative. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you very much. Pleasure being here. Yes, uh, welcome, Moshe. Now, Moshe, congratulations on, on your new book, Mind Wandering, How to Improve Your Mood and Boost Your Creativity. As we're passionate about creativity in the workplace, it seems like you're the ideal guest for us. But one question about the book springs to mind instantly. Uh, it's about something called the default mode network and the fact that the human brain is hard at work even when you think you're relaxed. And when I learned of this concept, it suddenly struck me how obvious it is. Of course, we know our minds keep chattering away, even when we're supposedly relaxed. And I, I believe you, it was uncovered by accident, and you've now helped us understand more about this network. I guess my question is, why has it taken us so long to acknowledge something which, in retrospect anyway, seems so obvious? Yeah. Well, I, I can take you even a step backward and tell you about the discovery of the default network, because once again, once we discovered it, we, we, we kind of all hit our head and said, uh, of course, that this is so intuitive, but it took a couple of decades to understand that the brain is very active when we're not engaged in any specific tasks. So initially for us at the big early days of the functional MRI, you know, the neuroimaging uh, 
that was uh, uh, developed maybe 20 or 30 years ago, we used to bring patient, uh, subjects to our lab, participants into the lab, uh, and put them in the magnet, as we call it, and ask them to be engaged in a specific experimental condition. Let's say it's just uh, an experiment about distinguishing what happens in the brain when people look at happy faces versus sad faces. So they look at a bunch of happy faces, then we tell them to rest uh, while we are reconstructing some images of their brain, and then we show them a bunch of sad faces, and then a rest, and then happy faces again, and a rest. And, and implicitly and very naively, we assume that Nothing is happening, nothing significant is happening in the brain while we tell them to rest, that the brain rests. And then, just by mere serendipity, people start looking at what happens during this rest, uh, believing that we'll see an almost uh, sleepy brain. But we realize that, actually, wait, it's vigorously active. It's very active in a huge network. It's almost like a third of the brain churning away and uh, consuming metabolic energy that's very costly, and lo and behold, it's very consistent between individuals, between experiments, between labs, between magnets, between continents. The same network keeps coming up. And we realize, wait, of course it doesn't rest. We does, the brain doesn't go to sleep. And when hand-in-hand uh, hand with this, people start uh, inter being interested in mind-wandering, we start looking at how often do we wander? How often do we drift? And I think this is even more stunning. It turns out that 47% of the time, almost 50, half of our waking hours, we are not where our body is. Our mind is elsewhere. 50% of our waking hours, we are not where we are. This is hard to fathom, even though the data is there and it's very solid. It's research by uh, my good friend Dan Gilbert, and he's a student at, at Harvard. Yeah. Now, your, your work goes a stage beyond that because at that level, this is an observation, it's true, but there's nothing you can do about it. And I think your suggestion is that you can actually control mind wandering. You can make it productive and you can adjust the kind of wandering going on in your brain to, to deliver particular outcomes. And, and for our purposes, to, to help the brain be more creative and so on. Um, and you've, you've suggested a number of ways of doing that. For example, lists of words that, that are deliberately connected, but, but, um, if you like, more stretchy, take you into different ways. It kind of right. adjusts the way that when the brain wanders and therefore sets it up for more creativity. Mm -hmm. Have I expressed that right? Is that a, a good way of summarizing it? It's a good way. I do want to highlight a, a little caveat here or kind of make a clear distinction in what you said. I don't want to mislead your, your listeners. And on the one hand, mind wandering is known to be... Uh, out of control, out of our conscious control. It has a mind of its own, so to speak. So we can't really control when we start to wander. We can't stop ourselves from wandering. You can, you always catch yourself wandering after you're done. Okay, you cannot tell yourself while you're wandering, "Hey, I'm wandering." Okay. So it really, uh, uh, you cannot really summon it, but you can create uh, optimal conditions for constructive mind wandering. As I lay out in in the book, there's good and there's bad. Uh, or constructive and, and less constructive types of mind wandering. So you can facilitate and kind of uh, uh, create conditions that will promote the best possible mind wandering, but you can't really control neither the content nor, nor the, the duration. So when I talk about liberating people from the guilt that uh, society has instilled in us for wandering, I tell, you know, I tell people, if you feel like you're in a streak of good mind wandering, because it does come and go in its phases, you know, stay extra 10 minutes in, in, in bed or in, in your sofa. There's nothing bad 
if all your creative juices are coming out right uh, at this mind wandering. If on the other hand, your mind wandering is mainly worrying and ruminating and, and all kinds of anxieties, maybe that's a good uh, uh, sign to stop and go do something else. But you do also, even though you can't control the content, again, you can prime yourself for certain content yes. by either feeling... That's, feeling uh, uh, by, yeah, yeah, either by, by feeling your mind... Yes, exactly. It sounds like my daughter's exactly. puppy. You can you can sort of train it up to a point, but there's a moment beyond which you can you can't contain. You need to get the conditions right, and you increases the chances of getting something exactly. rather than just controlling it completely. Yeah. Um, I had a question specifically about people in the workplace, which is which is our interest and in, and helping to understand and promote the cause of creativity at work. Because uh, the tools you suggest are primarily about an individual. Um, meditation, for example, I mentioned the idea of making the list that, that, that you've recommended. So they're all personal things that you can do to prime yourself to control mind wandering. Are there things that other people or uh, that outside influences that can help to help it at mind wandering? I'm thinking, for example, yeah. environments um, and so on. Yeah, so... Some of it is still clear and some of it is unclear. So I'll, t I'll start with the unclear aspect. So we know that being in a, in a dark room with no stimulation whatsoever is not going to stimulate your, your creativity. And at the same time, we know that being in an overwhelmingly uh, um, vibrant environment is going, again, to uh, kind of paralyze your, your creativity. So there's a sweet spot of level of stimulation, content of stimulation that might be uh, most conducive for creative thinking. I do talk a lot both in my research uh, scientific publications as, as well as in the book about correlations that we find and exploit now between unexpected things. So for example, mood, your mood and level of creativity. So there is this myth of the suffering uh, creative artists, the depressed creative artists that I'm happy to de debunk if you'll be curious about them. We can talk about it later. But <laughs> yeah. by and large... The, the reality is that being in good mood is the best condition, the best, best situation for being creative. So if you are some boss and you want to bring your employees into a room to uh, brainstorm on some uh, tricky problem that you require, uh, you need a creative solution for, you do want to mind their mindset, their, their state of mind. So if your employees are in good mood, they're more likely to generate uh, more positive uh, more creative uh, solutions. So, you know, uh, you can monitor yourself. Am I in an environment that you know where I feel uh, happier or less? So when I'm when I'm less happy, I know this is when I'll do my taxes or do something that requires focus and and, and doesn't require a good mood. But when I'm in good mood, this is when and all of us. It's not only observations about myself. This is by re we showed it by research, and now even have a. A little startup company that, that tries to tackle uh, symptoms of depression by making people. So this this correlation is bidirectional, interestingly. So by making people uh, feel better, you make them more creative. But by making them be more creative, and we can talk about that. I'm sure this will interest you. That we can uh, regulate how or kind of uh, manipulate how creative one can be. Uh, you can improve their mood. So if you, to go back to your earlier question, Chris, if I can make you think more broadly by giving you a list of words that are associated with each other but expand very broadly, then I'm more likely to improve your mood. Uh, and and uh, just just in case we, we, we 
just just to make sure we don't forget, I will elaborate on the fact that uh, people around me, I notice in, in talks and, 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 and uh, conversations that people think about creativity like destiny. Either you are born Leonardo da Vinci or you're just a piece of wood and you have no creativity in you. But of course we cannot uh, um, um, turn anybody to be Leonardo da Vinci, but each one of us has a range and we can be more or less creative within our own limits, right? But we can be more or less creative and we have to to be uh, minded of this and aware of this that in some states you can be more creative than in others. So it's not like either you're creative or not. Um, Moshe, I, 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 you're speaking our language. I have a, a scale which I call the pragmativity scale being pragmatic thinking on one end to creative thinking in the other. In, the other. in fact, I say, you know, if you, you, you're never on one end of the scale, right. unless maybe one end doing LSD or the other end doing your tax. Uh, but we all, we all, we all, we all go between, between the scale. Yeah. But I was really, I, I just wanted to pick up a point that you're talking there about, you know, the, the, the mood state of uh, being, you know, uh, happier and a better mood and being more creative. And there was one thing particularly that struck me in your book where you talked about the fact that, you know, the mind wandering allows us to sort of connect our past uh, and help us, you know, look to the future. Uh, right. And without going into the rumination part of it, you also that said, though, that the the preoccupation with that can sort of dampen our our ability to perceive novelty. And obviously this, this you know, being able to perceive novelty, you know, in, in my sense is a is a key part of creativity right so I'm, I'm just wondering how that sort of locks into what you're you know you're talking about you know mm -hmm. mood state and and how if the yeah if the default is the wandering yet we want to still make those connections and associations and and recognize the novelty right. so i'm particularly interested about that yeah well you kind of wrapped my entire book in one question so i'll try to unpack it <laughs> yes so what you call, call pragmatic and creative uh more broadly we call uh, exploratory and exploitatory so in one end and, right. you, and i completely agree with you we're never in one of these ends uh in the extreme ends but just for for uh, demonstration so when you're in an exploratory state of mind you're open to the world, so to speak. You're, by and large, as a race, we try to minimize uncertainty. We would like to know what's waiting for us uh, uh, around the corner. We want to be ready so that we can survive and can prepare. Sounds boring, but uh, when you're in an exploratory state of mind, you're more open. You're more tolerant to uncertainty. You're willing to sacrifice some of your safety, some of your certainty, in return to learning and experiencing and being exposed to to new aspects, to new things. When you're in the other extreme, when you're exploitatory, sorry about this noise, I hope it doesn't. Uh, uh, so no, when you're fine, in, it'll be okay. Yeah, okay. So when you're in an exploitatory state of mind, you're leaning more on memory, you're leaning more on what you already know, you're leaning more on your experience and on the past. So you're safer, you're more efficient, but you're learning less and you're experiencing less. So again, when I say that you can, there is a, a scale of being more or less uh, uh, creative, this scale is kind of uh, includes a mul multiple directions, including openness to experience, as we call it. So being more exploratory. So again, the same person could be more exploratory or more exploitatory. When I land in Varanasi in India, and I know it's a crazy city, crazy in a good way, very different than, than what I uh, than I know. Then I um, 
let go of all my expectations, all my previous knowledge. I want to absorb all this novelty because if you do come with your top-down, as we call them, expectations, you kind of impose your memories on your environment. In a way, it sounds funny, but it's true. It's, and in these states, we, our perception is our memory, not, not what comes from the senses. So when you're open to the world, you're really listening more to your senses than to your memories. When you're in exploitatory mode, you're safer because you lean on your experience, but you miss out all these things that they teach you so hard in mindfulness retreats and others to be exposed. And I, and I will add in parentheses that in my lab, we noticed and we actually have a manuscript under uh, consideration now that talks about the similarities between curiosity and creativity. People talk a lot about creativity, but we notice and we kind of propose a framework where curiosity is just curiosity and creativity are just two faces of the same or two sides of the same process. So when you're open to the world, you're open to discoveries, you're opening to seeing novel things. And when you're inside, when you're open inside to, to novel uh, paths on your, on your neural semantic network, then you're open to reaching original solutions and more creative and more remote corners of this semantic uh, uh, web rather than uh, 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 um, revisiting uh, trial uh, um, uh, paths that already are known to be uh, working. So uh, being open, you can, it can be externally in, in, in curiosity and then you notice novelties and can be internally and then it's creativity noticing a more original solutions. I'm wondering, Moshe, if, if this means the concept of safety is really important, that in that exploratory state of mind, it's about learning, it's about being open to experiences, it's about dealing with uncertainty, and therefore you have to feel safe um, because there are unknowns and there are loose ends and so on. And, and therefore it's very important if you want to encourage that thinking, yeah. People, I don't know quite how you make people feel safe, uh, but yeah. they have to feel like they are safe. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, the LSD that Paul mentioned before comes back to mind because you know you do need to <laughs> to worry about about the set and the setting here. So the idea here is that you know when I teach it in class, I talk about you come out of out of a bar, especially a female, come out of the bar and you have to walk back home, and there's a dark alley. This is not the time to be exploratory, right? So you, you, we, do, we do know when, we do have a sense of when, do we, when are we safe and where we're not. But when I'm again in Varanasi and there is this street food that I have, I don't recognize any ingredient there. And I know I might end up with diarrhea or with some uh, food poisoning, but I'm willing to take this risk, knowingly, right? But so, so in many cases, you prefer to be exploitatory, as boring as it sounds, but it's necessary. I have to emphasize that there's no good or bad uh, state of mind. There's a state of mind that matches the demands of the environment and a state of mind that's less matching of that. And our task is really to minimize the friction between our state of mind and the demands. So if the demands are risky and you're not there to be ex you know, exploring a, a, a risk and, and uh, you know, when you take a, a bungee jump, you know there is a risk, but you want to experience it and something in your mind tells you, okay, in this case, I, I, I'd rather take the risk for the exploration. But in many cases, this is not a good idea and then we just want to hurry back home and, and explore later on the internet, <laughs> but not, uh, but not yeah, on the alley, in the alley, yeah. So, um, uh, Moshe, I just, uh, we spoke earlier about different networks and you very clearly said that, you know, the default network is so big. Um, 
is is that you know you talk about in your book about you know mindfulness and your meditation practice uh and earlier you said on this podcast that you sometimes it's difficult you can't control the mind wandering but that that thing about sort of making that decision or a choice to be you know more exploratory or exploratory is obviously conscious you know like i'm not going to go down that dark alley you know i'm not going to explore that but i'm going to explore that because you know another person might you know end up in that food market and go oh I'm not tasting any of this, you know, <laughs> this is not safe. So, so that's obviously where some sort of level of consciousness comes in, uh, which is obviously a different part of the brain I'm imagining. Uh, yeah. But important, I, I, I imagine. I agree, I agree with you. And again, we, we do want to be careful with the terminology here. So some of, of your state of mind is within your control and some of it is imposed on you, okay? So if you're, if I'm sitting here and there's an explosion outside, it's going to change my my state of mind in an instant. And this is not my my decision, right? So sometimes this is of course extreme, but uh, it is something that you know they, it's it's always a, a kind of a, a a mixture of external and, and internal influences. So exploratory and, and, and exploitatory again is this spec continuum that just like I talked about creativity and mood. Exploratory and exploitatory tied to the same uh, construct we call state of mind, uh, same as perception, broad and, and narrow, attention, etc. So even though I can't really control completely my state of mind, I know when I'm in a good mood, when I'm creative, I'm also more exploratory. Okay, so imagine how could you be creative and exploitatory, right? By definition, when you're exploitatory, you're exploiting uh, familiar solutions. When you're exploratory, it's like, in, in, in Buddhism, they have this term, uh, beginner's mind. So all of us are yes, fortunate, yep. have, fortunate enough to have gray hair, and we're experts in, in certain things, right? So when a student comes to my office and suggests a new experience, experiment, I can say, no, no, it's, gonna, it's not going to work. I know this guy tried it, and this uh, researcher tried it already. Not going to work. Let's try something else. Or I may be pretending to myself, this is just for my own benefit, Pretending to be a kid, to, to, pretending that this is really like mindfulness and what they teach you there in, in many respects, like just the same way you can look at a fly, a flower, a fresh. This is a beginner's mind. Can you? Can we train ourselves to look at the beauty of this world like kid, like children that see it for the first time? We pass by beautiful flowers every day, and we we don't really stop and look at them. I can eat ice cream while talking to you, and I'll be completely mindless of the ice cream, and I just missed a great experience, right? Or blueberries and all, all these ex examples I give at the beginning of the book. So, um, so it's really a good idea to to uh, to uh, to approach these things if you can. It, it does require practice and it does require awareness. So the moment you realize this, if in, in the beginning of each experience, you think to yourself, oh, Moshe told me about this uh, beginner's mind, let's adopt it. So with practice, it will be very easy for you. So even the first... Even the next uh, egg and uh, cheese that you'll be eating or whatever you guys like to eat there in Australia. <laughs> uh, <laughs> not kangaroos, I hope. Uh, yeah, kangaroo burgers. So, you can't buy kangaroos. No, 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 no. I'm vegetarian. <laughs> Don't eat kangaroos. <laughs> so uh, whatever you like to eat, next time you eat it, just pretend this is your first time ever. You, you, it's, it's, it's amazing. All this sensitivity is within us, but we don't access it as often when we are in a state of mind that's more occupied and more and more uh, leaning on, on previous experience. Yeah. 
Uh, Moshe, I just wanted to take back to something you said before about you know, explaining about why well, you can't control the wandering mind. You know, you can be sort of aware, you know, if you're on the couch thinking good things or, you know, or worrying about the, the past or scared of the future. Um, I had experience uh, about 30 years ago. I was seeing a, a psychologist um, and I was regretting the past and, and I was scared about it. And I was basically ruminating. But he talked about it in the language of, of circular thinking, that I was doing this circular thinking. And it was a bad thing. And I couldn't understand it. And one day he said to me, oh, you know, in frustration, he said, it's like lateral thinking. You heard of lateral thinking. Now, you know, I knew about lateral thinking about Edward de Bono. And it's something I used as an architect, you know, to, to solve problems, you know, this whole idea of lateral thinking. And it just, you know, I didn't see him again after that because I realised that what it was is I didn't have to get rid of this lateral thinking. I just had to make sure that I didn't apply it to negative aspects of my life yes. because it was part and parcel of the way I designed. And so when I, I read that in your book about the rumination, you know, I, it really struck a strong chord to, to me. And I obviously, yeah. you know, the neuroscience wasn't there about it, but, you know, now to, to see that it's this real thing was, mm -hmm. was very eye-opening yeah. to me um, about yeah. it. So uh -huh. is that, that's the sort of thing you're, you're talking yeah, well, I hate, again, to be the, the scientist that likes to make everything precise here, but we do need to make a distinction. No, actually, actually, rumination and lateral thinking are not the same thing. So lateral thinking, as you know, as experts in, in creativity, this is really necessary for creativity. You do, you do want to think uh, uh, broadly and in parallel. Rumination is almost the opposite because it's a cyclical thinking. You may be thinking about a bad comment you, you made to somebody over dinner last night, and you just keep thinking about it over and over and over. And this is really the hallmark of depression, anxiety. Interestingly, in anxiety, you ruminate about something in the future. You worry about how this podcast is going to come out, right? But then, but then, <laughs> yeah, but then in depression, you might be depressed about how the previous podcast came out. <laughs> so you either going forward or backward. So it really, it's really an, an issue of, of, and that's why we also call mind-modering a type of mental time travel. You can go back and forth. But interestingly, one major difference between ruminations in anxiety and depression is that anxiety, the ruminations concern the future, whereas in depression, ruminations concern the past. But yeah. I'm sorry, it, it's wow. a cyclical thinking. And by making people think broadly, like this broad associative list that Chris mentioned earlier, we kind of get people, we try to make people unstuck, kind of make them more lateral, but also up and down, just not stay in a circle. Right, right. Okay. So it's interesting. But I, I love that distinction about, you know, one being about the future and one, one the other being about the past. I think that's, that's a great, uh, a great distinction to, to have. Mm -hmm. Moshe, I, I'd love to hear where you, I'm guessing you came up with this concept of mind wandering. The reason I'm interested in it is because so many academics manage to make their subjects so indigestible and something as strange as the workings of the brain could easily stay yeah. as some academic, esoteric thing that doesn't affect ordinary people. But the moment we talk about mind wandering, I think everybody goes... Oh, I've, I've been there. I wonder if there's a meaning yeah. to it. How did you come up with the concept? How did you help to get this yeah. idea in a form that ordinary people might understand? Yeah. Well, first, again, uh, let's make it clear that I didn't come up with the, with the term mind-wandering. I, I made it connected to one word. <laughs> people used to call it mind-wandering or with a dash. But 
but it's really uh, uh, it's not my own invention. And as you say, uh, uh, I mean, I do focus my research on it, but I have some other great colleagues that work on it as well. And mind wandering. Um, you're right. The moment you tell people about this, they immediately, oh, you should study. There are a few issues that when I tell people about, they kind of connect. Also depression. You'll be surprised how many people, when you say, uh, we have a new startup that develops apply, uh, applications for start for depression. Oh, you need to start. You need to try it on me. You need to try it on me. So it turns out everybody's depressed, but everybody is also mind wandering. Uh, and when you talk about mind wandering, everybody knows. I mean, people want uh, want you to make it more accurate about, or, you know, more precise. What do you mean? What kind of processes is fantasy type of mind wandering? Is planning types of mind wandering? Dreaming, uh, I but, was wondering, is that my Yeah, <laughs> daydreaming, exactly. Yeah. But but by and large, we realize, I think we, we none of us realizes that we, we uh, mind wander for half of our waking hours, but we do know that we do it a lot, we do it often, and we do feel guilty about it, except me, but generally, and my kids, you know, I do encourage my kids to just kind of uh, sit in the living room and not do anything. Uh, um, so, yeah. I just I, just to follow on exactly from that because you know in your back of the book you have an appendix from the lab to everyday life about you know how you can apply this to your life I suppose we're particularly interested in how you apply this to you know your business life um, and you know and clearly uh, I you know I can't imagine and you know especially like professional services firms over here they charge by the six minutes um, you know if the clients know that you know every other six minutes. <laughs> Their mind isn't on the job. <laughs> you know, they're going to have a big dip in um, in income. <laughs> but, so I'm just I'm just wondering, you know, if, if you've had any experience about yeah. applying this. We were looking before you know, a point where you were doing some of this stuff around architecture, yeah. and I'm a recovering architect myself. But I'm just <laughs> really interested about whether you have any um, experience in this applying this to the workforce. Right. Um, yeah. So from the frame of your glasses, I can say you're not fully recovered. This is a classic. <laughs> I love that. I've only, I've, only, I've only since started wearing them since I started practicing architecture. So uh... yeah, that's how I recognize an architect. It's either architect or psychoanalyst. Uh, but you do. <laughs> but uh... <laughs> so. Um... <laughs> It's funny you said about the client and the six minutes. The moment you realize, uh, let's take this concept I call, we call uh, creative incubation. You realize that many things you do while you wander, you incubate on an idea. So, so the, the man and woman on the street that don't think about creativity think that these aha moments that come to them suddenly out of the blue, they kind of have a solution to something they haven't thought about for three hours or three days or three months, boom, aha, there's a feeling that there's some kind of uh, pixie dust was uh, thrown at you and the, the, the result came from nowhere. But it's really your, your wandering mind kind of continue to incubate some of it consciously and some of it unconsciously. And then when there is a solution, you feel this aha moment. So you do, you can tell your, your customers, your clients that while you were away with your mind, you were incubating on their, on their problems. And funny enough, there is a, there's a famous uh, psychologist, uh, Ogden, Thomas Ogden, that he calls it reverie. Uh, and the idea here is that I think it's a lousy excuse for therapists not being with their patient and kind of drifting off. 
and he kind of wrote books. And I can't, I'm not here to criticize this, but it sounds, I uh, know, uh, funny to me that your, um, your excuse to your patient is that I wasn't with you listening to your problems. I was mind wandering about them. You know, I was revering, and this is important part of echoing, you know, and, and things like this. Well, I was really planning my upcoming vacation or whatever. <laughs> so, it, it, so, so, so we do find the excuses because society, tell, you know, gives us uh, uh, an impression that this is not a good thing to do. You're, you're lazy and go do things. Uh, oh, so, I forgot your question. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> <your answer. laughs> it was your mind wandering then, much. Eh? <laughs> if, if you're a lawyer or an accountant, can you charge your clients for not mind wandering? I guess that was the question. Yes. Uh, you, <laughs> you're adding an item for incubation. <laughs> um, I'm just wondering one of the exciting things about this conversation is, is it's about how to get the best out of the brain. And I'm thinking about the whole education system, which has historically been about ramming facts into the kids, poor things, so that they can regurgitate them when exams come around. And this opens the doors of potentially training people to be more creative and, and helping them understand how to leverage exploitative or exploratory thinking and so on and so on. Right. Have you had any interest from schools or education to help incorporate this yeah. into the way kids are or maybe anybody. Yeah, this is a, a tough, a tough issue. Both because I have kids and uh, one of them is still in school, and I resonate with the with the need, and also I can understand, of course, the broader implications and importance of of uh, education. And people have asked, but specifically, there was a nice discussion when I gave a talk at the Royal Institution in England. It's also online, and. There they took it to another angle. It's not that we teach them facts, because obviously we do need facts. Right? I cannot be creative now about a new solution for uh, uh, a new satellite, because I don't have the basic knowledge, right? So you do need some basic elements in order to create, you know, to create with. I cannot create things in the kitchen because I don't know how to cook. But, but I can be creative in things that I have the basic knowledge. So, of course, facts are important to some extent. I actually had questions that I that I kind of still thinking about because it's not it's it's really there's no easy solution. Is that I recommend that they let people uh, mind wander because this is really the seat of creativity. And this, as I said before, I really recommend my kids uh, and uh, and th their friends who read the book um, to do and my friends. So kind of try 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 uh, to exploit your mind wandering and can see what you can get out of it rather than to run away from it because it's a waste of time or whatever. But when you're a teacher in class, and that, that was the question to me there, and you have 30 or even 40 kids in, in one classroom like we do in Israel, unfortunately, 40 kids or 35, half of them with ADHD. Uh, so you look at all these hyperactive kids and the only thing the teacher wants is some silence so they can convey those facts that you mentioned, right? But there is this kid in the corner that really is mind-wandering and is the next Leonardo da Vinci and thinks about how a new way of flying. And the teacher doesn't let him because, you know, hey, Jimmy, you're not with us. You have to listen to this multiplication table again. And you really suppress this thinking. And I understand the teacher. And I feel bad for the kid. And I feel bad also for our society that we do not let this thing blossom. So, you know, there, there is a... Uh, there is a trade-off. Obviously, the same kid can continue wandering somewhere else and after school, so it's not black or white and I cannot blame the teacher for 
asking for attention because the kid just missed those those important facts. Uh, but we do, as a society, need to kind of develop methods to to afford this uh, this uh, uh, mind wandering breaks. You've reminded me. I actually have a client who they don't have lunch breaks. They call it well-being hour, and that they expect their employees to be away from their desks to have something to eat, but to walk or to talk to people or to not be in front of their computers for at least an hour during that lunch period. And I wonder if, they, you know, without even realizing it, that they're kind of saying, look, there are different frames of mind, there are different things you need to connect yeah. with, and. And they put it under an umbrella called well-being, but I wonder if you could put yeah. it under a, an umbrella called. Yeah, I was. I was gonna say that I was gonna say that this is a terrible name for this hour because what does it say about the other hours of the day? <laughs> this is the only hour. <laughs> well, but uh, yeah. now back to the cage. But uh, I, I think that um, I actually, after I gave it uh, one of the talks online, I, I uh, was engaged with. I won't mention the name of the company, but it is one of the biggest companies in the world. I won't mention their name. Uh, that um, wanted to kind of be more unstructured with their employees' time, so they can wander more and they can be more creative. So the idea here was there, you know, how can we make their time unstructured? Let's say half of their uh, time at work will be unstructured and to, so to promote a, a, a more creative and more free thinking. And it's funny, free thinking is a term I just borrowed from a teacher of my 10-year-old uh, uh, daughter who won the creativity uh, competition they had. And she invented a teacher made up this, uh, she, rather than call it creative thinking, she called it free thinking. And I, and I just loved it. That, oh, it's kind of li liberated thinking that has no, because we didn't talk much about inhibition, but this is really the breaks on our creativity. So free thinking really encapsulates it. So the idea with this company that I was consulting to was that how do you make the unstructured time efficient? So as I said before, you can tell somebody uh, wonder now or don't wonder now, just like you can tell people don't think about white bears or think about white bears. And, and the idea here is that our mind, again, has a mind of its own and it almost uh, even resists exactly, it does the exact opposite of, of what you intend to do. You can summon good mind wandering by creating the right conditions, as we said before. So even if you take these employees and say 50% of your time, do whatever you want. You know, you, there's no constraints. Go do yoga, go do diving, go lie under a, a, a tree. This is not necessarily going to make them more creative. It might. Definitely more than forcing them to, to balance a budget, right? I mean, this is obviously going to restrain <laughs> the mind of them. But what are the conditions to, I mean, get, do people realize that, you know, there's a strong relationship between aerobic exercise and mood and creativity? Do uh, people realize that there is a large, uh, a high uh, um, correlation between risk-taking and creative thinking? So can you take all these elements, some of which I, I, I of, of course, mentioned in the book, and make, you know, kind of uh, take them together to kind of structure an environment that uses these elements to maximize the chances? You cannot force it, but you cannot, but you can... Uh, uh, maximize the likelihood of creative ideas, creative mind wandering. I'm Pete Mosh. I'm beaming from, from ear to ear. I, I swim in the ocean each morning, 
And the oh. reason I've been doing it for many years, but the reason I started nice. to do it is because I was terrified of sharks. And I, and I know statistically there's no reason for that. Just You're going to get... You might get killed crossing the street, but you're not going to get eaten right. by a shark, no matter what the stories say about Australian oceans. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got that, but you've got that mixture of embracing risk. You've got the kind of aerobic activity. Um, right. Interestingly, you've got a kind of rhythmic thing when you're swimming. You breathe yes. time with your body, and so on. so maybe it's the perfect yeah. environment for yeah. having creative. Thought. My, Certainly, a number yeah. of things do come to mind. Yeah, it's difficult well, to write them down when you're swimming. Though that's the problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> My son is a swimmer. He was a professional swimmer until he went to the army. Here, everybody goes. And now he finished the army and he's coming to Australia next month to explore your country. And he would swim. You know, I felt bad for him. He would swim 10 kilometers a day. You know, he would wake up at 5 a.m. and swim for 10 kilometers in, in his team. And you think about, and you know this, Chris, and, and I know, I don't know what's your exercise, Paul, but in any event, you know this idea of being alone. You're really, even if you're in a team, walking, good. Yes. Walking is good too. Um, so the idea is that you're, and I ask him, or what do you do there for, you know, two hours, you know, with your head under the water, you know, and just kind of, of course, you have friends on, on, on neighboring na- lanes, but you're alone with your thoughts. And you yeah. do realize that it's really a great, it, this is obviously a type of meditation and, and, and a way to kind of, hone in on ideas and kind of uh, come up with with, uh, with topics that, that you wouldn't otherwise. We have all yeah. this, um, mm. the Kurt Vonnegut, who I love, has uh, this short story, um, Henry Bergeron, that's the name of the story, Henry Bergeron. And it talks about this uh, world where everybody is meant to be equal. So if a, if a girl is born too light and too athletic and she is a light ballerina, like very good ballerina, they put weights on her legs so that she doesn't jump higher than somebody else. And if somebody is very uh, smart, they put headphones. This was back then. They put headphones on his head mm-hmm. or her head. Uh, or and then the mo- every two minutes exactly that's exactly the analogy and every two minutes there is a loud noise so that they cannot develop deep ideas they cannot so like after this big noise this loud noise they forgot they forgot where, where were they and they continue with something else right so this is our modern way of living so when you're yeah. swimming or when you do something uninterrupted obviously this is a good good start for good mind wandering of course, if the input to your mind wandering is worries and anxieties and ruminations, then you better stop it and, and go do be you know go be busy with something else. But when it is positive, what's that? I was thinking if you if you if it's rumination, maybe you should jump out of the pool and balance a balance sheet or do something kind of like that to to click yourself out of it. I find yeah. I find it wonderful, especially early in the morning when your mind is maybe hasn't quite woken up yet. It's it's I've never yeah. found it. Turning into rumination, you often think of kind of interesting new ideas. Um, so I love it. You should uh, uh, please put your son I like in touch that, with us. Uh, that, uh, yeah, that, that uh, if, if he's in Brisbane or Sydney and he gets into trouble, let, let him drop, you know, let us know. Um, I, I was actually just uh, reading recently a book, uh, Rest, I don't know if you've read it. Um, but in there, she, she talks about uh, Hans Searle, who was, you know, the grandfather of uh, the science of stress. Um, and he wrote 1,500 articles and quite a few books. But he talks about that basically uh, his words were he would wake in the morning slowly and have a conversation between his conscious and unconscious brain, um, and that's how he sort of did his writing. Then he'd get up and, and it all flowed down. Um, 
and that seems to me a little bit, you know, about that thing as as just Chris said, he wasn't quite awake, but it's almost that thing of, you know, he was mind wandering, but then you know, then almost directing it, then mind wandering and directing it the way way he described that. Uh huh. So, um, well, I'm not familiar with I, I, this book. Sounds familiar to me, but I'm not sure I've seen it really. Uh, you know, we all develop our own methods. I'm kind of the way I look at conscious and unconscious mind. A conversation, be- a conscious conversation between them is impossible, and this is. A, but I, I have to see what he means by it. Uh, but yes, I mean, we do have our inner dialogue, and there are two people, there are two individuals within us that, that have this conversation. And and part of the reason we have this, as you know, we can theorize on it, part of it is really to verbalize our thoughts. But another one is really to, to kind of um, uh, run ideas by each other, right? So there's two people inside. There, yeah. Obviously, there are two, two representations of us. You know, it could be the more exploratory and the more exploitatory. And as I talk, and I say yeah. in, in, in my book, it's like the, the, the critical, serious father and the carefree daughter, teenage daughter. And it's really like two different characters that, that are arguing inside and one wants more risks and more explorations and more thrills and the other wants more safety and more. So, so it's good to run ideas by, by your other self and, and kind of, um, see. Yeah. so I can, I can see how this would promote creativity. I love, I love that analogy. I have a 13 year old daughter. Uh, oh, <laughs> so you know what I mean? Yeah. She, I know she just turned 13 a couple of weeks ago. So uh, Chris is, Chris, Chris is beyond that, but I, Yes, that's that's a great analogy. Um, run ideas by yourself. I think that's that's great. There's always two conversations you can have, even about a single idea. Moshe, yeah. is there anything else that you wanted to add? Um, you know, we, we we don't want to take up your whole whole day. No, um, I actually. That, I, yeah, I, I think we covered. I mean, there's always we can always talk about more, but now it's th- time for my curiosity, Chris. What is it on your desk? It looks like little bottles or this. Uh, Brownie oh, thing. thank yeah. you so much. Yes, these are <laughs> bottles of chili sauce. I, I love chili sauce, but my business is also called Chili Sauce. Um, I, I say to my clients that I add spice to thinking. Uh, I used to work oh, in nice. big companies, and yeah. and this is why it's, uh, it's so much thinking in big companies is is vanilla flavored. It's flat, empty, uh, dull, I, and I like <laughs> to help them spice it up. So hence the bottles of chili sauce. I have just yeah, made a batch I of chili it. sauce. I, I have got chilies in the garden. I do love chili sauce as well. So oh, yeah, you do. Yeah, we, we also. Yeah, we also love chili. And Paul, everything on your on your on the shelves behind interests me. I don't know. You should send me pictures with the legend of what what's going on there with all these elements. Well, well I will. Uh, uh, this one here, this little house, um, this is an invention of mine called Lighthouse, and it's got a little solar lamp in the bottom, and it, oh. it sits like that at 22 degrees to get the sun. Uh, and then nice. you turn it over, it turns on. The battery's flat at the moment, and that was just a little cover. So that was called Lighthouse. Uh, cool. And, uh, um, and so it's just, but I'll, I'll send you, I'll send you, uh, yeah, I'll send you a, a diagram. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I yeah. Uh, say, look, I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank look, and, and we, and we could talk for hours. Yeah, I, I just think, uh, <laughs> I, I love, I love the fact that, you know, you, you are, you know, you, you come from a scientific background, but you are curious and you, you know, and you've given great hit, tips in your book about how to apply it to life. Yes. We don't come from science, but we're, you know, we're, we're so interested in it. And so for us, um, you know, to, 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 to be corrected, 
you know, for me to be corrected by a, you know, world-leading neuroscientist <laughs> on creativity about the difference between lateral and circular thinking is, is an honour for me. <laughs> so, um, and to watch Paul being corrected by a world-renowned scientist is also an honour for me, so thank you for that. <laughs> well, it was a pleasure talking to you too. Thanks again for your time. It's been, uh, it's been sensational. Appreciate it very much indeed. Ah, Chris, what a fantastic discussion that we've had. I am, yeah, I am, um, my mind is racing. As, as you said, there's no wandering tonight. Uh, it's been fantastic, <laughs> incredibly insightful, uh, great fun. Um, look, all the links to uh, all Moshe's, Moshe's stuff is in the, in, the, in the show notes below. Uh, I can highly recommend his book, Mind Wandering. Um, we'd love to hear what you... What you think, if, you, if you're listening in, uh, do you, what do you think about this idea of mind-wandering and of effectively training your brain to be more creative, to note the states, give, give you more creativity? We want to hear from you. Uh, pop your comments in, in the notes below. Um, if you like this quest we're on to understand creativity at work, hit subscribe. Um, and I hope we'll see you at next week's show. <laughs>